Before we do that, let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is powerful and alive. We thank you that we can open it without fear of persecution. Lord, we pray that we would treasure your words as more precious than gold. Father, we pray that today as we read, that you would prepare our hearts and minds so that we might be transformed into the likeness of your son. Bring to light the areas in our life that need surrendering and we pray that we would understand and know how to be more like Jesus today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. From verse 14. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the gracious promise I made to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line. He will do what is just and right in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will live in safety. This is the name by which it will be called, the Lord our righteousness. For this is what the Lord says, David will never fail to have a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel, nor will the priests who are Levites ever fail to have a man to stand before me continually to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings and to present sacrifices. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. This is what the Lord says. If you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night, so that day and night no longer come at their appointed time, then my covenant with David my servant and my covenant with the Levites, who are priests ministering before me, can be broken and David will no longer have a descendant to reign on his throne. I will make the descendants of David my servant and the Levites who minister before me as countless as the stars of the sky and as measureless as the sand on the seashore. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Have you not noticed that these people are saying the Lord has rejected the two kingdoms he chose? So they despise my people and no longer regard them as a nation. This is what the Lord says. If I have not established my covenant with day and night and the fixed laws of heaven and earth, then I will reject the descendants of Jacob and David my servant and will not choose one of his sons to rule over the descendants of Abram, Isaac and Jacob. For I will restore their fortunes and have compassion on them.
How's that? Ah, good. Uh, all sorts of things this week. There was a cryptic reference from Ben about seeing the inside of an ambulance. Um, I came off my bike on Friday, my fault, clipped the wheel in front of me, down I went, probably dislocated the shoulder but it popped back in. So I got a ride in an ambulance. First time I've ever been in one. Uh, so I've got two firsts this year, ride in a helicopter and a ride in an ambulance. So I know which one I'd prefer. But uh, that's not what we're here to talk about. Robertson McQuilkin was the much-loved president of Columbia Bible College and Seminary in the United States. In 1990, he resigned to take care of his wife, Muriel, who, who had advancing Alzheimer's disease. She was only in her late 50s, so it was early onset and it was uh, a difficult thing for him to grapple with. She had deteriorated to the point where he had to choose either to care for Muriel full-time or to institutionalise her. Now, listen to his own words describing that decision. He said, When the time came, the decision was firm. It took no great calculation. It was a matter of integrity. Had I not promised 42 years before, in sickness and in health, till death do us part, this was no grim duty to which I was stoically resigned. It was only fair. She had, after all, cared for me for almost four decades with marvellous devotion. Now it was my turn. And such a partner she was. If I took care of her for 40 years, I would never be out of her debt. How could I walk away from the responsibility of a ministry God had blessed so remarkably during our 22 years at Columbia Bible College and Seminary? Not easily. And then McQuilkin goes on to describe many difficulties he faced caring for Muriel. One example is going shopping. Um, He tried to do everything with her so she was included in what was going on and she would just as quickly as as he put things in the trolley, she would take them out and put them in someone else's trolley or gather things from someone else's trolley and put them in his. So just a trip to the shops was a bit of a a drama. He could have done it more easily by himself, but who's going to look after Muriel? So this was what he committed himself to. And he said he became more exhausted mentally and emotionally than anything he'd ever encountered in his busy life as a president of a Bible college. But God gave him the grace to care gladly for Muriel until she died. And I think Muriel, in her own way, would have been immensely appreciative of the care that her husband had given given her. Jeremiah reveals to us a similar example of tremendous faithfulness under adversity. And he points us to a God who goes to enormous lengths to keep his promise to Israel despite Israel's desertion and unfaithfulness. 
But first, a little bit of context that'll go a long way to understand Jeremiah 33. If I don't give a bit of context, you'll probably not make a lot of sense uh, from this passage. So just quickly, as Jeremiah spoke in this chapter, Jerusalem was under siege. All the, all the siege ramps were, had been built and in place for a year or two. The Babylonians were setting siege and were prepared to wait patiently and just starve Israel to the point where they do something desperate and they get a breach in the walls and get through. Also, Jeremiah was in prison in the king's courtyard because he'd been prophesying a message of gloom and doom and Zedekiah, the king, had said, well, you're a traitor. Here we are in our time of greatest adversity. We've got the Babylonians, the greatest power in the world, laying siege to our city, and you're saying they're going to succeed. You're undermining the morale of the people in the city. I can't have that. So here he is prophesying faithfully the message that God gave him to give, and he's copying it. He's got adversity lying outside the walls, and he's got adversity in his own circumstances. And yet, in the middle of it, he's got a two-pronged message. I've got to be careful with this arm. Two-pronged message. Because he's giving both, at one and the same time, a message of discipline for their sin, but also a promise of restoration, because God who promised is faithful and will keep his promises to David's son that he'd given long ago to King David and ultimately to Abraham to raise up children from all nations. So here's the circumstance that he's got. What's he to do? God's word is, is shut up inside of him like a fire, and he cannot be quiet about it. He must speak. But as soon as he opens his mouth and speaks, he cops it, and he winds up in prison, and all along you can see the Babylonians patiently waiting, and the day is looming, and he knows because God's told him that they're going to succeed. Just put yourself in Jeremiah's shoes. That would not be an easy situation. He gets put down a well. He gets abused. Very few trust him. So he has this puzzling double message to deliver, the promise of God's judgment and of God's restoration, of exile and return, of chastisement and restoration. In obedience to God, Jeremiah had gone in the previous chapter and bought a field as a prophetic act witnessing to God's promise to restore Israel. If you look at at chapter 32, you'll see that a near relative comes to him, prompted by God, saying, Jeremiah, would you buy this field off me? Now you think about it. They're about to be besieged. Jerusalem's walls are going to be knocked down. Why would you go and buy a field? It's already occupied by the Babylonians. They're outside the walls of the city. The field is out there. But in his spirit, he he recognises this is of God. So he does it. He goes and buys a field as a prophetic act, witnessing to the fact that one day God will keep his promise and even though they go off into exile, they will return after 70 years and they will be able to once again sow and reap. There'll be the sound of music and weddings and dancing. There'll be the the sounds of commerce and business and Jerusalem will be in full swing. 
So he goes and spends this money knowing full well that it's at least 70 years down the track and he'll never live to use the field as a prophetic act. All of this follows straight after the promise in chapter 31 of God's new covenant. Jeremiah 31 is is quoted several times in the New Testament and it points to Jesus. Just 31 to 34 of Jeremiah 31. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. And that's significant because Judah is under siege, but but Israel, the northern kingdom, was already 50 or 60 years before taken off into captivity by the Assyrians from which they'd never returned. And yet here, God is making a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, so through Moses, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I'll put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I'll be their God and they will be my people. And if you go down, you see verse 35, this is what the Lord says, He who appoints the sun to shine by day, he who decrees the moon and stars to shine by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar, the Lord Almighty is his name. Only if these decrees vanish from my sight, declares the Lord, will Israel ever cease from being a nation before me. Only if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth below be searched out, will I reject all the descendants of Israel because of all I have done, declares the Lord. So Jeremiah is bringing this two-pronged message of judgment and salvation. And it's significant that it's in the context of this new covenant. So today I just want to do three simple things. Just point out the three things that God is doing here and then make, if you like, a significant application to us at the end for how we live in the light of God's promises. I think you'll find it, it helpful. The central point of Jeremiah's prophecies are that God is going to keep this word of the covenant, this new covenant. Even though Israel's in captivity, even though Judah's about to go into Babylonian captivity, the Old Testament is one huge testimony to God making and keeping his word. So the first point I want to make here is God is a promise-making and promise-keeping God. A promise-making and promise-keeping God. He's promised to Abraham to make the offspring as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. He would keep. Look at verses 2 and 3 of Jeremiah 33. This is what the Lord says. He who made the earth and the Lord who formed it and established it, the Lord is his name. Call to me and I will answer you and tell you great and unsearchable things that you do not know. Look at verses, verse 11. There will be the sounds of joy and gladness, the voices of bride and bridegroom, and the voices of those who bring thank offerings to the house of the Lord Almighty. Give thanks to the Lord Almighty, for the Lord is good, his love endures forever. He is a promise-making and a promise-keeping God. 
And we just see it coming out time and again in this chapter. Look at verse 14. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the good promise I made to the people of Israel and Judah. And that's a reference back to chapter 29 where he says 70 years of captivity in Babylon and then restoration. So God's promised that he'll keep his word. In those days and at that time I'll make a righteous branch sprout from David's line, King David. He will do what is just and right in the land. In those days Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will live in safety. This is the name by which it will be called the Lord our righteous saviour. Take note of that. The Lord our righteous saviour. David will never fail to have a man to sit on the throne of Israel. Nor will the Levitical priests ever fail to have a man to stand before me continually to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings and to present sacrifices. So there's a reference here to God's promise to David to never fail to have a man sit on the throne, a royal king sitting on the throne. 2 Samuel 7 talks all about it. And the Levitical priests never to fail to have a man to stand before the Lord and offer sacrifices. But think about it. They're about to have 70 years where that won't happen. There'll be a puppet king. They'll be cut off from the temple. There'll There'll be no one offering sacrifices. They'll be in captivity in Babylon. There'll be a few poor people left in Jerusalem. And what goes on will be under the direction of the king of Babylon, not under any royal son of David. So the days were coming when Jeremiah would be transported to Egypt. He would die there with no apparent fulfillment of his prophetic act. He'd gone and bought the field. He would never live to benefit from it and yet he's prophesying this in faith knowing God is saying this. Friends, sometimes we've really got to believe what God says even when we cannot see how it will possibly come to pass in our own circumstances. And it may indeed not come to pass in our lifetime. Jeremiah accepted this. He knew this. But he knew that he who promised was faithful and would do it. So our faith is always most tested by adverse circumstances. When we can't see how God is going to work things out. Think of Daniel in the lion's den. Again, being faithful to God. This is happening during that very Babylonian captivity. And, 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 he, and he's told not to... Uh, to He's told to bow down and worship this golden um, statue of King Nebuchadnezzar and he refuses. And three times a day, steadfastly toward Jerusalem, in exile, like Jeremiah had promised, he prays and he seeks the God of Israel, not Nebuchadnezzar. And he gets thrown into a lion's den for it. But God shuts the mouths of the lions. Moses in front of the Red Sea. God's promised that they'll be able to come out and he'll take them into the promised land and all of a sudden he's got Egyptians behind him and all he's got in front of him is a body of water, the sea. And God says, stretch out your staff. He stretches out his staff and God divides the water and Israel goes safely through the middle and the Egyptians are drowned. This is what 
it means to trust a promise from God. To trust when we cannot see. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. By it, our forefathers received a good report. Hebrews 11. And this is what we're seeing in action from Jeremiah. Listen to what Titus 1 verse 2 says. In the hope of eternal life, which God who does not lie promised before the beginning of time. Some versions translate it, God who cannot lie promised before the beginning of time. He who promises is faithful and will do it. And Jeremiah's staking his life on that, literally. So I encourage us, don't be faithless, but believe. God is a promise-making and a promise-keeping God. We can trust him. So Daniel, when he's in uh, that position in, in, in uh, Babylon and he's praying towards Jerusalem, he's reading Jeremiah 29 verse 10 and he says, This is what the Lord says, When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. And so he begins to plead that promise knowing that the 70 years is just about up. So Daniel would lay hold upon the good word of God and pray for its fulfilment. And God raised up faithful Nehemiah, who was released to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild its walls and, and set governance again in the city after 70 years. God had raised up faithful Jeremiah to buy the field, declaring all of this would come to pass. And God would, would raise up a faithful prophet Haggai, exhorting the people to rebuild the temple so they could re-implement sacrifices just like Jeremiah had promised. So from these things we see God's faithfulness to the words of his prophets. He's stirring them up, even though at times they're prophesying of things that they don't fully understand. They don't fully discern the significance of it but they know that the one who promised is faithful and so they open their mouth and they prophesy. Our God is a promise-making and a promise-keeping God. He's faithful. The Lord, our righteousness. But there's another thing to notice here as well. God backs his promise with assurances and signs. Assurances and signs. So look at verses 19 to 22. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. This is what the Lord says. If you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night. That's going back to creation. So the day and night no longer come at their appointed time. God had set, we're told in Genesis 1, the sun, moon and stars for days and for seasons, for signs and for years. And he says, if you can break that, then my covenant with David, my servant, and my covenant with the Levites will be broken as well. And as far as I know, day and night are still happening. God is keeping his word. And that's the point that he's bringing out here in Jeremiah 33. It occurs again in 25 and 26. If I have not made my covenant with day and night and established the laws of heaven and earth, then I will reject the descendants of Jacob and David, my servant, and will not choose one of his sons to rule over the descendants of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Going back to, to Genesis 12 and the promise to Abraham. For I will restore their fortunes and have compassion on them. I will restore their fortunes. So God gave a sign to Adam, the trees of life, 
and the knowledge of good and evil in, in the garden. To Noah, the rainbow, to Abraham's circumcision. He often backs up his promises with a sign. So that the sign is like a, a, a second endorsement, a, 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 a capping off of the assurance that he who promised is faithful and will do it. So Jeremiah's act of buying the field. When Jesus came, it's interesting, where, where did Jesus arrive? He arrived in Bethlehem, out in the fields where shepherds were. And they were watching their flocks. And Jeremiah had prophesied that once again there would be shepherds in the field watching over their flocks. And a star comes. And he said, if you can break my covenant with the day and the night, the sun, the moon and the stars, and a star guides guys from, from, from a far country to the one who's born the king of Israel, leading up to Christmas. God is keeping his word. He's fulfilling his promise. And we should pay attention to these signs because they're meant to reassure us of the certain ground of our faith. They point out whenever God is acting in a prophetic way that there's significance here. Pay attention. He means what he says and he intends to keep his word. Signs are to gain our attention and reassure our faith. So... Uh, for us, as, as Christians, we have the sign of baptism, the sign of the washing away of our sins, the cleansing and the forgiveness that God brings to his people, renewing by the Holy Spirit. We have the sign of the Lord's Supper. This is the new covenant in my blood, shed for the forgiveness of the sins of many. Drink all of it. So we should look carefully to these things and take hold of these signs that God has given us, signs and seals of his promise. So when we look carefully, we can see why. God's a covenant-keeping God. He gives us his signs because it's all about God's promise for a righteous saviour. Look at verses 15 and 16. In those days and in that time, I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line. He will do what is just and right in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will live in safety. This is the name by which it will be called the Lord, our righteous saviour. The Lord, our righteous saviour. So it refers back to the promise in Jeremiah 23, the days are coming when I'll raise up for David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right. Now, if we look at the immediate context of the history following Jeremiah, we can't see this. None of the kings that came afterward would really fulfill that. And that's why the prophets kept prophesying again and again. That's why we've got all these minor prophets exhorting Israel to get back to these promises and trust him because there's going to be a coming one. There will be a faithful God who will keep his word. So the promise is now taking on a new shape. It would be a new or a refreshed covenant where the old covenant was powerless to change the human heart. The new covenant, by the coming of the Spirit, would change us from the inside. When Mary sings in rejoicing before God, in Luke 1, she says, He has helped his servant Israel. 
remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. God kept his word, but it was through his son, Messiah, Jesus Christ. So we're seeing that the huge significance of the arrival of Jesus here. He's the Lord, our righteousness. All God's promises terminate in him, like railway tracks. Where's, where's the final terminus? If you trace all of the railway tracks of prophecy back, they come to one end point terminal, and it's Jesus Christ. In him, all the promises of God receive their yes and amen. No matter how many promises Paul says to the Corinthians, God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. So Jeremiah 33 shows us God is a promise-making, promise-keeping God. He backs his promise with assurances and signs. His promise is about a righteous saviour. But the key thing for us is how do we go about in claiming that promise or sharing in that promise? And there's a little word that is used that we need to understand and it's called inherit. We inherit promises Hebrews 6 verse 12 says we do not want you to become lazy but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised broad is the way that leads to destruction narrow is the way that leads to life few find it But if you will dare to believe that God is true to his word, that he has sent a righteous saviour, Jesus Christ the Lord, the son of the living God, and you place your faith in him, you will be saved. God will have mercy upon your soul. Not because you're so good and righteous, but because he is so good and so righteous. Not because of what you have done, but because of what he has done. In his perfect life, his perfect death, his perfect resurrection, his, he, God vindicated him and took him up into heaven saying, this is my son, I receive him back in glory. And we're seated with him in the heavenly places, we're told. So we worship a God of unparalleled grace and faithfulness, not only for the Jews, but also for the Gentiles. His promises overflow the land of Israel. They overflow Israel and Judah out into the nations all around, to the islands far off, even as far as Tasmania and Antarctica and New Zealand and Lord Howe Island, you name it, all the Pacific Islands, all around the world, that promise goes out. So how do we take on board a promise? We must inherit it. How do you inherit? It says through faith and patience can't speed up an inheritance you can't take the rally out and shoot them say I want my inheritance not the done thing it just doesn't work like that it's through faith and patience you inherit a promise and it's from our heavenly father 
Now, who inherits? Family. Family. We've got to make sure we belong to the family to inherit. As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Even as many as believed in his name, says John. We worship a God of unparalleled grace and faithfulness. But if we don't inherit through becoming children of God, then the wrath of God will will remain on us. That's why Mary was so excited to see the arrival of, of her son. And Jeremiah bought that field in the confidence God had promised. When you struggle in life, as most surely you will if you haven't discovered already, then you've got to figure out, you've got to resolve to direct your gaze on God's ancient promise to our forefathers that he fulfilled through Jesus. Hebrews 1. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the universe, the sun, the moon, the stars. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So train your heart to feast on a steady diet of God's promises Not verses taken willy-nilly out of context, but rock-solid gospel promises applied to your life with thoughtful consideration of the context. Then in prayer, claim those promises as your own. They're intended for your encouragement. They came with a sign so that you could take hope. So that in hope and through perseverance, like Daniel reading Jeremiah 29, you might believe and be saved. You might be redeemed. Romans 15.4 says, Everything was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. Hold on to gospel promises. Stake your life on them. Build your life on them. Begin with the most obvious ones. And then as your faith grows, develop an eye for taking more and more heart and more and more to heart God's faithful promises to you in the gospel in other areas. Don't let yourself get bogged down in peripheral matters or debates. I just, uh, to finish up, want to give an application from one verse. 1 Corinthians 6 says, do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? There's inherit again. Inherit. 
wrongdoers don't inherit. But people through faith and patience inherit the promises. So he says, do not be deceived, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. I reckon everyone here in this room is included in this. Whether heterosexual, homosexual, whether uh, personal or online, digital or in print, uh, sexual stuff is covered. Uh, no matter whether it's through an illicit lover or God-forbidden bosom friend or how much of a better person you feel you become through such sexual experiences, you will hear these words ringing in your ears. I never knew you away from me, you evildoers, unless you depart from living like that. Those know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God. Well, that's all of us. It's not just sexual immorality, it's greed, drunkenness, slandering, swindling, anything to do with, with being not true, we won't inherit the kingdom of God. So what, what hope is there? It says, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So the way to inherit the promise is to come to the Lord, say, I'm not worthy to be your son. I've failed you in so many ways. Have mercy upon me. And God has promised to receive you for Christ's sake, to adopt you into his family as if you were a natural-born son and to give you his inheritance. That's the hope of the gospel. And when we do that and we come in obedience, no matter what we've done, is washed and sanctified and justified by the blood of Christ and by the Spirit of our God. We have to do a UE. We have to do a U-turn. So I encourage us, look to these promises of God. Claim these promises. Go to the terminus, to the end point. Go to Jesus. He is our hope. He is our life. He has done it all. So listen again to what Hebrews 6.12 says. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. We know that through many hardships we enter the kingdom of God. Press on to find a way home. Some of you might have been caught up, I know Keverell and Dellis were, uh, in New World Avenue with this siege in the last few days. We've got a, a daughter and son-in-law that also live in New World Avenue and they couldn't get home. They were cut off. Eventually, he had to find another way around and go around through a back route and make his way home. So through persevering, you can find your way home. Not being lazy, 
but persevering and, and there will be a way made for you, God has promised. And you will make your way home. Despite what opposition you might have, in Christ, all the promises of God are yes and amen to the glory of God. Let's pray. Gracious and faithful Heavenly Father, please take away our stony hearts of unbelief. Give us the grace to believe your promised and testified faithfulness in Jesus. We don't deserve your love, but neither do you deserve our unbelief. We come as you decreed, trusting not in our filthy rags, but receiving the pure white robe of Christ's righteousness, the Lord our righteousness. On the basis of your word, we choose to believe the promise of restoration in Christ Jesus. You've given us your word of hope, the word of the gospel, the good news. We dare to believe it. Thank you that you receive us for Christ's sake, that you take pity on us, not because we deserve it, but because it is your very nature as a promise-making and a promise-keeping God to offer yourself freely and generously to this world. Thank you for making a way for us when we were powerless to make our own way, when we were tied up in captivity, unable because we were besieged by enemies and beset by sin, you made a way to rescue us through your son when we were without strength without hope and without God in this world you chose to shower us with your mercy in Christ Jesus so we praise you that in your wrath you remember mercy and in our darkness your light has shined to give us the light of your love in the face of Jesus Christ through whom we come to you now and keep coming to you now and forevermore. Amen.